Bible's number, actually go to this class instead, because that's going to be more helpful for you. Um, so come to this class. It's, I think, about eight, eight weeks, six weeks long. Um, so you don't, if you want to, you can sign up in the foyer. Um, and then if you can see this Facebook page for details. Alrighty, we are very excited to announce that Dave and Deb Crone are going to be joining us on March 30th through the 31st. Yes, some people were here and they've been here because they guys, they are so awesome people and we're so happy to have them come and share, you know, what Jesus has been doing through them and with them, with us. And it is just a great, great partnership. And they come down and just release everything God's been doing in their lives and we receive it, and it's so good. So if you please want to come, it's going to be on the, the 30th of March, the 30th and the 31st, so Saturday and Sunday. Please be here. You do not want to miss that. Yeah, they're like the mom and dads of this house, which is cool. Um, so how many of you know Egg Scramble's coming up? Woo, woo. Yeah. Um, so this is our... Uh, this is one of our community events where we invite the whole community to come on campus and we have like a great time celebrating Easter, introducing Jesus. Um, it is so cool. Um, Lisa Moore isn't here, but she did an evangelistic craft last year and they had several people, like several kids and like adults, I think, come to the Lord through that craft. So it if, if Jesus can work through a craft, you know, how much more can he work through all of you, you know, who come and just, you're just light, you're just Jesus to them. So this, I, I, I just want to encourage you, inviting somebody isn't hard. It isn't hard. And in fact, actually, a lot of people are excited to come, I've found. If you just say, hey, you know, there's this really special, like, event that's coming up. I don't know if you'd want to come or anything, but. But we have flyers right outside in the foyer on the kiosk. Um, so invite somebody. Like, make it intentional. Yes. Um, and whoever God puts on your heart, uh, go for it. You are awesome. I challenge you. You are awesome with people. Yes, they're going to show up for tacos, but leave with something so much better than tacos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please invite somebody to that. All righty. Um, spring break is coming up, and there are some few... There are a few, uh, just some scheduling things you guys need to know. We are not going to have Saturday night service on the 16th. We will be having church service on the Sunday right after the 17th. From the 16th, if, if you guys are here, we're not going to be here. We're going to be at the beach. So please don't be here. Uh, there's not going to be any youth or kids group here on campus on the 20th. So keep that in mind. On the 20th, there will not be any activities going on here on Wednesday night. And no connection groups either uh, on March 18th through the, the 22nd. So that week, there's not going to be much activities going on because we want to, you know, we want people to spend time with their families and their kiddos for spring break. So just keep that in mind. I mean, if you want to, like, go with a friend and, like, hang out with them, that's okay, too. <laughs> yes, I'm not saying no, you know, no connection. No, no, yeah, yeah. But there's not going to be any activities right. going on campus here. Awesome. Right. Yeah, there you go. That, if you don't have a place to go for spring break, go to CR on Fridays and Mondays. All right. Well, we have a really special guest, and we are so excited to have Scott Money Hunt come up and share. Let's give him a hand. Moment of truth. Am I on? Yeah. Yay. All right. Wow, this is going to be really loud because sometimes I tend to get carried away. So uh, <laughs> they may have to adjust me uh, up there. Uh, first of all, I just, a couple things I want to say. Um, you know, I don't get an opportunity to come up here and, and, and contribute uh, some thoughts. And, and I need to do this more often to specific individuals. But I really appreciate the praise and worship that goes on here. And, and let me tell you something. If... Um, you've ever had to speak somewhere where the praise and worship maybe wasn't as good, it's a little bit more difficult. And to be able to come up here and speak after uh, what, what gets done in this, in this uh, house in praise and worship, it's pretty easy to do. Um, they really do a tremendous job. Um, so I do appreciate that very much. Now, another thing I want to say, and, and you cannot um, 
accuse me of um, being a sink of fat or, or brown nosing. I, um, because Tim and Elizabeth are not here, so I can say this. Um, you know, I'd be uncomfortable saying it if they're here, but I'm going to talk behind their backs. Um, we're really blessed because we are in a church that we've gotten used to um, hearing the word, and this includes Tom too. Uh, we're used to hearing the word that's actually real and fresh and for the moment, uh, being delivered by men and women who actually are really seeking God. Because we have all been in place, I know I have, where <clears throat> they use canned sermons. And that idea of just reaching into a file, huh, it's a good word, yeah, well it is, it's, it's the word of God, it's truth, it's the Bible, but you know what, it's not fresh uh, 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 manna. And, and you can really tell the difference. And so, <laughs> because of that, it puts a little bit of pressure on you when you are asked to come speak because it's kind of a high bar. And, and people don't want to just come hear somebody flap their gums, especially me, um, flap my gums. Uh, they expect to be fed. And, and so that's what we've gotten used to here. Um, so please, bear with me because it is a high bar. <laughs> um, Anyways, uh, Deb or Kelsey, you have that painting. I just want to uh, real quickly show a painting up here that um, that's not bad. There we go. There we go. Um, I did not paint it, by the way, but it is a, uh, a Russian painter, Nikolai uh, Nikolaevich. And uh, Nick, I hope I did that properly. Um, It is a painting I share with my students when we're going through the Romantic period and we're talking about um, art in the Romantic period and all the emotion that's evoked in the art, whether it's music, literature, or paintings. And I like to show them this one, and I like to let them just kind of wrestle with it a little bit and, and see what they think. And they usually wind up saying stuff like, well, I go, what do you see up there? And they go, well, we see a, uh, a, a good man and a bad man. And we see, oh, what's the good man? And I go, well, the, he's in light. And he's wearing these robes, and they're golden, and the light is shining on him, and he seems very reasonable. And then there's the bad man. He's kind of in the shadows, and he's kind of scary looking. And he looks kind of wild. And some people, say, yeah, he looks like the wild man. And uh, they'll go on and on. They go, well, what do you think is transpiring in this scene? What's happening? And they'll say something along the lines of, well, it looks like he's, he, he, the, the good man is trying to reason and, and, and he's trying to uh, talk to either make a statement declaring something to the wild man, trying to calm him down. Maybe he's asking him a question. I said, maybe he is. Maybe he's posing a question to him because the wild man just got done saying something really, really radical. Oh, really? What did he say? He said, the wild man said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then they all go, oh. And it's at this point that Pontius Pilate is saying, what is truth? Quotus veritas. What is truth? It's the name of the painting. And thank you. I appreciate that. What I'd like to talk about tonight is about truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this time that we can gather. It's ordained by you. Lord, we believe that it is um, your time. And is blessed by you. Prepare uh, our hearts, Lord God, our ears that we would hear, Lord, your word. And those things that are real and those things that are true would take root in our hearts and would change us and transform us. Lord God, that we would meet you, encounter you tonight, and we would never be the same. We ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, It all started... <clears throat> it all started on a dark, stormy night. No, it, um, a couple of years ago, I heard God speak to me, and he said um, something to the effect of, feast on truth. And, and I was just in a time of just, I probably was driving to work since I do that most of my life. I'm in the truck driving to work. I drive to Austin in rush hour traffic, so it takes me two or three days to get there. Um. And, and I'm sure that's when God was speaking to me. I'd have some of my best times <laughs> talking to God. Um, and he said, feast on truth. And, and I, I, I 
obviously, when we hear something like that from God, we're okay, God, what do you exactly mean by that? And he says, pretty simple, feast on truth. And so, uh, okay, I'm going to go with that and nothing else. So I started to wrestle with that, and I just started to mull that over in my mind and think, well, what does that mean, feast on truth? Like Pilate, what is truth? Quotus veritas. And God very patiently starts to unravel and unfold, and I start to think of all these things that are true, and I realize most of what we think is true is nothing more than facts. A lot of it is knowledge. But that's not truth. Um, I think of Aristotle. Aristotle is what we consider the father of science. All right? Back about 300 B.C., he formulated what we understand as the scientific method. And most of all his theories of science, because here's this brilliant thinker. I mean, incredibly brilliant. He was uh, uh, the, the tutor to Alexander the Great. He was this brilliant man, and this man of, he took science and he put everything in categories, and, and our, our understanding of biology and physics come from the words and the thoughts of Aristotle. All these truths about the world we live in. Well, today, by 2019, we have proven more than half of what Aristotle said was wrong. And the ancient world built everything upon the truth of Aristotle, the truth of Aristotle's words and his ideas and his facts, but they've been proven wrong. There's so many things in our world that we take and we embrace as truth, but it's really not. So as I'm whittling down what is truth, I came to this one conclusion. Truth is reality, and there is only one reality, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come to give us truth. He is truth, and I guess in a way he did because he gave us him. So, so often we look at Christ, and people do, that Christ is a, is a teacher who speaks truth. No, 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 no. No, he is truth. And not only is he truth, my supposition is he's the only truth. He's the only truth. And, and here's how I, I started parsing this word down. I started thinking about it. Um, the only things that are true are things that will last forever. See, we look around us and we see this world that we believe is, is real. But this is just temporal. As real as this may feel, and as real as it may seem and look, feel and taste and touch... It's all temporal, and therefore it's not real. It will pass away. Christ is the reality. So what we, what we wrestle with and what we deal with constantly is being deceived by a mirage all around us and the truth that is constantly calling out to us to ignore, put aside the mirage, don't put our hope in it, don't put our faith in it, don't put our trust in it, but rely upon the only truth, which is Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> tied into this, and it may seem funny how it's tied in, I started to uh, dwell upon the scripture about the same time, a couple years ago, Hebrews eleven six, where it says it is impossible to please God without faith, for one must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Okay, I want to be able to bring these two ideas together. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, here's what I came up with as I was mulling this over for the past couple of months. God is not really interested in rewarding us for seeking him out. He is, however, going to reward us when we find him. See, the glory is not in the seeking. The power and the glory is in the finding. And the reward is this. When we find him, he's the reward. He's the reward. And, and I think so often religion 
Religion creeps into our thinking and our behavior and our attitudes all the time. And religion tells us constantly be seeking, constantly be seeking, because there is some type of pride in knowing that you're always pursuing the things of God. If you constantly are concerned with the seeking and not the finding, you may go away content, but you will always be unfulfilled. You'll always be unfulfilled. God is hiding in plain sight. He wants us to find him. See, some people get so caught up in the pursuit of truth that they don't realize it's attainable. Now, this is, uh, you talk about your school of Greek philosophers, um, whether it's the Stoics, uh, they were always in pursuit of, of, of a good argument. It's called sophistry. You just create an argument so that you can debate and defeat someone else with words. But to arrive at a conclusion and truth was unthinkable to them. That was, that was foreign. That was a bizarre concept. There's a great um, uh, chapter in uh, The Great Divorce, in, in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, and he talks about um, this man who uh, is, is in this discussion, and his whole pursuit in life, he was, a, he was a scholar and a theologian, and his whole pursuit in life was to pursue truth, but never really cared about finding it. That's a waste. That's a wasted life. And, and the man that was trying to talk with him, reason with him, is saying, no, 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 but truth can be known. Oh, well, of course, in a theoretical sense and esoterically, it's possible to someday attain to a level or a modicum of truth. And he says, no, 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 the truth is Jesus. He's right here, and you can know him. And he had no interest, no desire in actually knowing truth. He just enjoyed the pursuit of it. So whether you're an intellectual or whether you're uh, religious, it's the pursuit. That's all you care about because there's something about, there's something rewarding about the works involved with pursuing that appeals to the religious nature that's not never has been christ's intention it's always been i'm here for you to find me he desires that now and here's the whole point of finding god encounter and tim's talked about this a lot and it's it's really it's just been weighing on my heart for the last couple years this idea of encounter transformation without those encounters every time we we read the word every time we pray every time we're in church every time we're thinking and talking with god and talking with others about the things of god it should always be for one sole purpose not to play a game of semantics but rather to encounter god because it is the encounter that transforms us I think that I was on a treadmill, and I think a lot of people have been, where you feel, um, if I do enough things, if I do the right things, I'm slowly going to become like Christ. Now, it's very subtle. And a lot of people would say, well, that sounds logical. But it's actually false. It is not in the doing that we will slowly become like Christ. It's in the encounter then after the encounter, then we go out and do the works of Christ. He's called us to do good works, but good works are never, never uh, 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 done in order to slowly be transformed. Good works are just the overflow of the encounter you've had. And I know Tim said that a million times. We've all heard it, but there's something so uh, freeing about that idea that's just amazing. Now, Again, getting back to this idea of reality and unreality. As we seek God, we know that he is easy to find. He's made it where he is attainable. And he desires for us to be in his presence and where we can achieve that encounter uh, and that transformation. But we are so easily 
I think Lewis says that we're amphibians. We live in the real, in, 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 the, in the physical world, and we live in the spiritual world. And we do tend to do that. But what Christ wants us to see is the spiritual realm is the only realm. Whatever the physical realm may hold for us, it is so temporal. And we're creatures of time, and so we're bound by time. But there is going to be a moment when we realize the 75, 80 years that we're here are really nothing but a, a wisp of smoke. When we're on the other side in eternity, we're going to realize that really wasn't real. In fact, it's going to seem like a really, really, really shabby dream. I don't know if you've ever woken up and you've, you've been um, like, oh, I just had that dream and now it's already gone. I can't even remember it and I want to remember it. And it's like, it's just, it's like a puff of smoke. We need to constantly have that attitude right now in the world we live in that this life is nothing. It is a wisp. And focusing our attention on what's true, what's reality, is where we're going to uh, uh, find that satisfaction for our souls. Um, do we have that short piece of music up there? Could you go ahead and just... Um, this is a piece by J.S. Bach that was written um, the 18th century. Uh, the title of it is Waketh Uft auf Unterstima. Sorry for the German pronunciation. It's such a melodious language that rolls off the tongue. Um, basically translated, it means wake up, his voice is calling. And I'll bet you've probably all heard it before. It's a gorgeous piece of music that Bach wrote to the glory of God. He wrote it referring to this idea of awake. He's calling us. Thank you. That's good. I could listen to that for hours. <laughs> it is a beautiful piece of music that it's been translated as a rise, O sleeper, but the true translation is really more uh, wake up, his voice is calling. And it's this, it's this message that I keep hearing of God trying to shake his people awake and say, leave the mirage and, and, and awaken to the truth. And Paul even says that in Romans. He talks about, arise, O sleeper. Shake it off. Because we are creatures who have access to the real world. And we're so distracted. I'm the worst. Between sports and, and politics and some people with entertainment, we, it's so easy for us to feel like this is reality. And it's not. It's not. It's very brief. It's very brief, and it's fleeting, and it's easy to get caught up in it. Now, I have, um, I, before I get into the, uh, First John, um, there was a side note when I was, when I was studying for this, and I thought about this. I, um, <laughs> it's a crazy story. Um, this idea of, of walking in truth, and speaking the things that are true and not giving in to speaking things that are, are false. It's really easy to, to see that when we talk to other people and we could see that in them and it's easy to correct, but yet I'm guilty of it and, and, and I'm learning to stop my mouth because there's something I'll get into a little bit later, but there's something vital about our words agreeing with truth, with what Christ says with what Christ is, with the reality that Christ is. It's crucial. So it goes back uh, uh, probably 10 years ago. I, I was just had this re revelation. And it's no big deal other than I remember singing in church. We were singing some song about how much we loved God. And we're like, oh, I love you, God, I love you, God. And as I'm driving to work the next day, I'm thinking about how much God loves me or that God loved me first. And I thought, you know, I really don't love God like he loves me. I don't. And I'm like, Lord. And it, it, at first, it, it broke me and made me tender to the fact that, Lord, I really don't love you like I should. 
and you love me, but I really don't love you. And, and so um, when, I, when I start worshiping God, it would come out. It goes, Lord, I don't love you, but I know how much you love me. For long, I was proclaiming, I don't love you, God. I don't love you, God. And, and in my way, in my own way, in my own way of um, uh, devotion, I was confessing sin that I didn't love him like he loves me, but I found myself professing this, you know, deceived by the enemy, thinking that I'm doing something humble. I'm doing something out of a broken, passionate heart. I don't love you, God. I don't love you, God. And I did that for months. I'm not kidding. And I'm, I'm embarrassed now to say that, and I'm ashamed. And it hit me. It hit me and said, that is not lining up in agreement with what God says and with what Christ says. See, we, and by we, I mean Christ and I are in this relationship. Okay, this relationship right here. And by me proclaiming, I don't love you, God. I don't love you, God. I don't love you, God. What do I start feeling after saying that so many times? My feelings will follow my proclamation. I don't feel love for God. I think, (laughs) how, how ridiculous. I'm that old and I've been serving God that long and I do that. And, and I just caught myself after several months, I'm telling you. I love you, God. Of course I love you. Because you first loved me, I do love you. I'm able to love you. I am in a love relationship with you. And I am not going to deny, deny that or denounce that. That is truth and that's a reality. I love you. And so now I don't say it with a sense of pride. Look how much I love you, God. No, 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 no. I say it because it's true. I say it because it's reality. And that's the realm that Christ dwells in. And we need to line up our words and our thoughts with that reality, with that truth. And he will, he will gently, gently show us that and point us towards that. But it's amazing how we can get carried away by such a silly Silly, silly deception that, that you look at now and you go, wow, that's really naive to say something like that. But I don't know. I got caught up in it. And I thought it was a, a, a tender, broken thing to say. But really, it was agreeing with the enemy and it was denying the truth. And that's never a good thing. Now, um, a couple things. I'm thinking about this relationship that Christ is drawing us into. This relationship of of walking in his reality and his truth. And quite often I've heard, I just heard somebody um, debating Christianity the other day and they were saying something along the lines of, yes, but you, you know, you're foolish. You just have this blind faith. And there was a time when I thought, well, yeah, that's what it is. It's blind faith. And I thought, well, wait a minute. No, actually it's not. What we're called to is not blind faith. And to believe that deception is wrong and it's very damaging. The scripture says in Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say hope and believe that the Lord might be good. It says come and see. Taste and see. And everyone that's had an experience of salvation knows that they have tasted the Lord. And they have experienced the Lord and they've encountered the Lord. And that is what he calls us to. A faith that recalls the sweetness of that encounter, that taste and see. Now, your faith may be stretched because he's calling you to bigger things. But he's always, always calling you to remember and recall his goodness and that you have tasted and you have seen. And it's not blind faith. It's a faith that's rooted in the goodness of God that we have all experienced. And we need to remember that. Now, um, <clears throat> I've been going through a couple books um, 
concerning this, this idea of, of pursuing God and, 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 and encountering Him in this place of reality and truth and just the time spent with Him. And it's a book called, uh, well, you've probably heard of Smith Wigglesworth, uh, Ever-Increasing Faith, and Francis Frajapan's uh, The Three Battlegrounds. Thank you. And I'm reading them both one page at a time and then writing notes, and it's amazing how these two authors, so different, um, are saying the exact same thing. Um, I really like this one by Smith Wigglesworth. It says, There is nothing impossible with God. All the impossibility is with us when we measure God by the limitations of our unbelief. Now, I think about that, and I think there is a realm of encounter with God that that we can attain to where we believe Him more than we believe the circumstances. Where we see His reality that He is the King and the Lord of this universe and we don't have to look at the circumstances. When you read some of the accounts of these men, it's amazing what the kind of faith that they walked in. And I'm telling you, the only way that faith is developed is not through, and I've tried this, believe me, conjuring up faith on your own. It doesn't work. It happens through encounter. It happens when you spend time just trying to believe for things when you don't know the author and the source in an intimate way. It's really futile and it's difficult. And it, again, it's religion and it's trying to do things in your own strength. Um, these men that, that, that say these things and write these things, it's through just years of not seeking God, but finding God and spending time in his presence. You see, now, quite often when I say something like that, there's that feeling, and this is the enemy, um, it's that dirty word called devotion. And when we think of devotion, quite often we think of, oh, I got to read more. I got to pray more. I got to witness more. I got to go to church more. And it's the only way I'm going to cultivate that rich relationship with God where I have this faith that moves, moves mountains is I got to do. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. Because that becomes a burden and it's heavy. And it's hard and you, you crack under it. And that's not what he's saying at all. That is what the enemy is saying and that is what this world says, the mirage. But reality, truth says, oh no, spending time with him is easy. It's easy. He really knows who you are and where you are, and he just wants to hang out. And I know that sounds so, I don't know, so hippie-ish or something, but it's true. It's the reality. Look, you can't explain Christ dying on a cross unless God really, really, really wanted to be with you. I mean, it's, it's more than we can fathom. He is crazy, bonkers, insanely in love with us. He's bananas for us. Now, I don't know why, but I do know he is. He wants to be with us. And you know what that's like when you really want to be with somebody. It's not a burden. And that's how he feels about us. And spending a little bit of time with him, that's how you realize, oh, this is really kind of sweet. That is the only way. That is the only way that we will start to translate from this mirage and this false reality into truth and the reality of Christ is by encounter and spending time that's sweet. I think that the devil has made so many stumbling blocks and so many obstacles to a pure relationship with Christ that we've made it difficult and we've also, we've We've tend to, religion has made it so distasteful. And that's really not what it's about at all. It is about a very, very sweet fellowship. Um, now, this is something I just want to throw up there because of I talked earlier about, about words and about saying things and about watching what we say. It was just last week, um, 
I was playing some praise and worship in my classroom. The kids are coming in, and, and they're just eighth graders. And it's just the way they are. And I really wasn't angry with them. But there's a tendency for them to, they want to mock everything, right? I mean, th- that's, that's how you're cool. Everything is beneath you, and everything is fair game when you're elevated to the status of an eighth grader. You've reached some sort of pinnacle, I suppose. Um, but, but, but seriously, I saw a student begin to kind of just flippantly sing these words to this praise and worship song. Now, it wasn't anything gross. He wasn't doing anything uh, uh, degradation. It wasn't anything that was really ugly. But, man, a word just dropped into my head and my heart, and it said, when you mock things, you take away its power to impact you. And I was like, not out of anger, but out of concern. Hey, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And I thought about my own life. This idea of being flippant, flippant with, with, with important things of God, true reality of God, can tend to make us impervious to those things. And, and, and Lewis, I, I didn't even realize this. I had read this years and years ago um, uh, in um, uh, Screwtape Letters. And, and he said basically uh, something along the lines of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating from God. And I think when we hear truth and we either mock it or are casually flippant with it, that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. And, and I, such a powerful uh, sensation that I had for that student that I, I told them, you, you can't be that way. I understand it's your nature to mock, but don't do these things that are, that are designed to save you, to draw you, to heal you, to help you, to change you, to shape you. Don't, don't, don't allow those to lose their power. Now, um, this idea, again, going back to reality and, 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 and a unreal, the temporal versus the eternal. Christ as the only truth, the only reality. Um, I couldn't help thinking of, of a book that, uh, well, it's probably my favorite, and everybody has a favorite. Um, Mine is the silver chair, all right? Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, some people, it's a magician's nephew. Uh, but I have always liked the silver chair for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of them is at the very beginning uh, when Jill is ready to go off on her mission. She just meets Aslan. And Aslan t- gives her instructions, four things that she has to do. And he says, now, Jill, you need to repeat those. And she casually, okay, well, she goes, no, no, you don't have it right. Stand here and repeat what I've told you. She does it again. She does it again. She does it again. And he tells her, he says, listen, there's going to come a time when you may not hear my voice so clearly. And you need to know what's true. And you need to know what's real. When things get dark and things get confusing, you need to know that you know reality and truth. And then he, he sends her off on, on, on her way. Now, the part that I really am referencing that I really like about the book is, um, is underground. This, this young man has been kidnapped, and he is now being held underground. And during the day, um, he's actually quite sane. He's very normal. He's very sophisticated. He's very intelligent. Um, and he's really actually good friends with his, his uh, uh, um, kidnappers. And he is very reasonable. It's at night that he becomes a raving lunatic. And at night, he becomes so crazy that they have to strap him down and strap him into a silver chair. Because it's at night when he realizes who he is. He's not just a man. He's a prince. 
He's Prince Rillian, the son of Caspian, and a servant of Aslan. And he knows that at night. When he appears to be mad and insane, it's because he is trying to get free and be the real person that he is. But during the day, this enchantment is upon him, and he has no clue who he is or what he's supposed to be. And he thinks that that position he has now being subservient to this evil queen, that's what his life was meant to be. That's who he was meant to be. And he's quite content with that. It's only at night. So quite often, what I'm trying to get at is the world, the world that's passing away, the world that's not eternal, the world that's a mirage, may think we're mad when we stand up and be who we are called to be. We'll look mad to them. We'll look insane, because Jesus did. When you are in a false reality and you behave as if you are in a real reality, true reality and it doesn't mesh with the false one the people in the false one the mirage are going to think you're insane they're going to think you're crazy that's okay that's okay because if we really are believing that christ is the only reality we should look mad to this world and and i confess too many times i don't i don't now I want to read um, just a little bit from 1 John. All right, so if we could just turn to 1 John. I just want to read a few things from there, and I want to point out a couple things because my reading has taken me to this uh, Scripture. So if we could just start off um, John 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And Oh, good, we do have it. Okay. that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Now again, what John is saying is, we're not giving you a fairy tale or a myth. We're giving you truth. We're telling you about reality. This is the God of the universe came down as a man and we actually We're with him. We touched him. We saw him. We walked with him. We talked with him. So again, it's not this imaginary fairy tale that some people make it out to be. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, in the book, this very short book of 1 John, uh, the word truth is used 13 times. In almost every place, in almost every place, you can substitute truth with reality or the reality of Christ. Because this is what John is talking about. He's talking about true relationship, that true encounter where his world, the real world, becomes more real to us. Us as these amphibious creatures, we gravitate and we recognize the reality of Christ in his world. Now, here's a couple of things. As I go through this, um, I see it over and over and over and over in 1 John. John is saying, if you belong to God, if you're his, if that's a reality, then you will love your brothers. If you belong to God, if you are his, you will keep his commands. And as I read that as a very young Christian, I thought, again, there's that weight. Because sometimes it's hard to love people. And sometimes it's hard to keep commands. And sometimes it feels like a huge burden to, to, to have to keep these rules. And that's really not what John's saying. What John is saying is, because you're his, you will do these things. He's saying, this is a sign that you're in him. 
because you will do these things. It can be very overwhelming. Let me read real quick from, um, I think it's here in, ah, yes, in chapter 2, if you could put chapter 2, verse 3 up there. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. We know that we have come to know him. Let me stop right there real quick. All right. I've got to say this, and I think you already know it. I think you already understand this. As a baby Christian, as a child, I read this and I thought, no. All right. Our understanding of no is learn a mental assent to some amount of knowledge. Okay, I can do that. I know I should read the Word of God. So I need to know Him. That is knowing about God. The know that is in here is the Greek word for relationship. This is what God has called us to. I spent a lot of years believing my Christianity was a mental ascent, a climb up a hill or a mountain of knowledge, information. And let me tell you, nothing will burn you out quicker because there is absolutely no joy in that. Now, a religious person can take some kind of comfort in that because it makes it feel good that they've achieved this amount of knowledge. We've got a lot of people in this country that have a lot of knowledge, but they don't know Jesus Christ because the know he's talking about is relationship. I I mentioned Smith Wigglesworth, all right? An incredible man of revelation and faith. He was a plumber. Nick, no offense. Nick is one of the smartest people I know, actually. (laughs) Um, But he was not a scholar, and yet he had a relationship of God that, that birthed unbelievable revelation. Unbelievable. And it wasn't because he knew the Greek. He didn't understand uh, the Hebrew. He did not uh, write a series of volumes on the incarnation. He was not a great theologian. But he knew God. And, And to know God versus knowing about God. Now, one appeals to the pride and to the flesh to know a lot about To know God will change your life. It'll change the world around you. It is only through that kind of knowing that you're changed and those around you are changed. It's that encounter that brings about the transformation. So uh, make sure we understand. We know that we have come to know Him. And that means intimacy. That's why... why Stupid people can be very profound. You know, stupid in the world's eyes, but be so wise. You can have a second grade education. You may not even have to have that. Just the intimacy with Christ will, will, will make you so brilliant and wise. I mean, the, 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 the disciples, most of them were fishermen. And the great scholars of the day marveled at what these guys knew and what they understood and and the authority with which they taught. It blew them away. And it was said, they could tell they had been with Jesus. That's what it is. It's that encounter, that relationship. And so for me, that's like a, that's a sigh of relief. We don't need all these degrees and qualifications. Just need to be in his presence. And that's not hard. That's not hard. He's made it easy. Anyways, it says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him, or the reality of Christ is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. It says again in um, verse 9, 2 verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves loves his brother is in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. He is in a, an illusion, in a mirage. He stumbles. He doesn't see reality. Now, as a young Christian, I read those and I think, okay. And I'm not, I don't know if you've ever done this. I'm going to just be very honest. I have come away from church many a time going, feeling weighted down with all the things that I should and shouldn't do. And I have believed the lie that the way I can prove that I'm in God and that I am his is if I do all these things after reading John, 1 John. Well, if you're in him, you will keep his commands. And all that I think about is all the things that I've left undone and all the things that I have done that I shouldn't have done. And I think, wow. And it's been a huge burden, or it was. Think about this. I just made a very short list of the rules. Now, I'll never forget somebody coming to me and saying, so what are the rules in your church? And I was a baby Christian. I actually knew more as a baby Christian than, than, than I did 20 years later. But as a baby Christian, he came to me. He goes, oh, so, so what's, what, what, what church you go to? I told him, I says, well, what's the rules? And I go, rules? What do you mean? Yeah, what can you do? What can't you do? And I was like, huh? I didn't really understand any of that because I, was, I wasn't raised in church. I was just snatched up at, at 22 years of age out in Southern California. And yes, I know. Can anything good come from Southern California? And Nazareth, I know. But... Um, and it's just, it, rules, do's and don'ts, I didn't realize that until years later, and I started to imperceptibly be weighted down with all these thoughts of, I got to do that. I shouldn't do that. I need to do this. I'm not doing that. I want to do that. And it was just like, oh. And my fellowship with God, my relationship with God was really suffering because I felt so oppressed with all the ways that I wasn't doing what I should do as a Christian. Hopefully, if that's ever happened to you or crossed your mind, hopefully I can help relieve some of that. First, let me share with you a very, very short list of do's and don'ts. Rules of what to do and what not to do. If we read the scripture, it says, do not hate but love. Keep his commands. Do not be stained by this world. Do not call your brother a fool. When someone takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. When someone strikes you, give him your other cheek. Feed the poor. Love your enemies. Take up your cross. Clothe the naked. Resist the devil. Keep the Sabbath. Pray without ceasing. Wash one another's feet. Do not judge. Do not worry. Do not boast. Give alms to the poor. Honor your parents. Do not covet. Be thankful in all circumstances. Deny yourself. Be anxious for nothing. Put others first. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Do not be weary in well-doing. Set no wicked thing before your eyes. Care for the widow and the orphan. And you think, God, I don't do any of that. And I'm too tired to even think about it. Now, that was always this disconnect in my mind because I loved God. I wanted to love God. I wanted to pursue God. I wanted to be with God. I, I know the times we spent together are sweet, but that list of what I don't do the things I've left undone and the things. And then I'd go hear a message and then it's like, you know, you need to be doing this. And I go, I know you don't have to tell me. I'm blowing it. Listen, here's all you need to know. This is it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> what God is saying is, yes, I have prepared you for good works, but that comes from the overflow of the encounter with me. And it's a sweet thing. And, and when you get the horse before the cart, rather than the cart before the horse, it starts to make sense. See, I believe, again, Satan has laid so many pitfalls and so many stumbling blocks before us if we're not careful and if we're not with him, listening to him, 
we start to believe a lot of things that are damaging and distressful. And I realize that really I don't have to check off a bunch of things on a list because that really, really makes me anxious and nervous because I would probably lose the list anyways before I even got started. And when it was all distilled down to one thing, come and sit by me. Okay, God, how many chapters do I have to read? Don't, don't forget about the chapters you have to read. Well, i got to pray for this, and i got to pray in this order, and they've got a format for how we're supposed to pray, and there's many books about how you got to pray. He said, forget the books. Just come sit by me. And you will be revived, and you will understand what love really is, and I will be able to pour into you. And then, in your natural, everyday life, you'll feed people. You'll clothe people. You'll help people. You'll visit people. You'll encourage people. And it'll be natural. And it won't even feel like you're doing any work. See, that's the place where you get to really understand what it is to be in the presence of God and how that love that he has starts to pour into us and then flow naturally out of us. Religion always says, do these things and then you will be accepted. God says, you're accepted. Let's hang out. And then the doing of the thing is a joy. It's a piece of cake. And, and that list that you had to check off, it's gone. Can't find it. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You will just naturally start to behave like the truth, like the reality. And you will understand that's the real realm. And the only reason we're here, because there was one other thing I didn't share with you about what's eternal. One other thing. All of us. And all of them out there. Their souls are eternal. And there's nothing our Father wants more Every soul, no matter how filthy we may think they are, there's nothing he wants more than every one of those souls to know the love of Christ and to come. And see, so if we're religious and we really work up our faith and we really, really check off our list, we're going to turn people off. We're going to turn people off. We're going to burn ourselves out and we're going to turn them off. But we start behaving and living and walking in reality, in his truth. It's a beautiful thing. People are drawn to it. I can only imagine that Christ, when he walked the earth, that he was a people magnet. It didn't matter if they were prostitutes, um, uh, 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 publicans, republicans, whatever. They were drawn to him because... He freely loved. He didn't ask any demands. Didn't need anything from them. He just loved on them. Never judged. We don't have to judge anybody. They know. They need to know that they're, that they're loved. Truly loved. <sighs> it is the encounter with God that trans- transforms us. Too often, and I was the last point, too often we treat that encounter as a rest period. Now, I've heard Tim speak on this before, wasn't quite following him, and boom, a light bulb went off a couple weeks ago, and I recognized, oh, that's what... We, 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 we love, we walk in this world, we do what we're called, and then we finally hit a point where we're just... And then we come and meet with God, and we have an encounter. And what God wants is... Not for him to be a rest stop where we can recharge our batteries. But he wants it to be a 24-7. He wants that relationship to be continually flowing out of us. You think, oh, that will be exhausting. No, 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 no. Actually, quite the opposite. Being plugged into the source all the time, it is refreshing. And it it is what will help us or cause us to achieve his goals. So this idea of uh, uh, 
do it and do it and do it and do the thing, and then I need a break with God. It's like, no, 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 no. No, don't treat it as a rest stop. Treat it as a lifestyle. It's what we're called to be in and what we're called to dwell in 24-7. Hopefully, hopefully somebody in here um, has struggled with the same things I have. Hopefully this has helped. Hopefully understanding this, um, or at least meditating on this a little bit, maybe has cleared a few things up. The last scripture I, I want to uh, talk about, uh, the last one I want to give you is in um, the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch, abide, abide. Don't visit, abide. We don't have to work up fruit. We've all tried that. It's as hard as working up faith. We don't have to work up fruit. It will happen naturally. It'll be the consequence of encounter. Christ is truth. Christ is reality. He's really the only truth and the only reality. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. We thank you for the relationship you've called us into. We thank you that uh, you have not called us to a list and to duties, to responsibilities and obligations, but rather you called us by love into a love relationship. And Lord, as we enter into that, as we dwell in that place of reality, we will decrease and you will increase. We thank you that you've chosen us to partner with you and that you want desperately to use us in this world, but you want more than that is to be with us, to transform us. We thank you for that. We believe you for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Did we want to, I guess we're dismissed. Have a great week. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.